glad I sat down. Thank you, Walt. I'm sorry. Um, I, I've been doing this longer than I probably should in some ways. But when I started, I was extremely jumpy, jittery, nervous. I've gotten a little bit better. But I do know that if, if that internal, jittery, scared feeling goes away, then I really do need to be done. This is the word of the Lord, and we hear him speak to us um, through this. But we're glad also for those, those, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And uh, I'm sorry that I mess things up once in a while in the order of service. Now, several years ago, um, we did walk through the 10 words, the 10 commandments, one by one over a course of 10 weeks. And you can take a mad rush to Larry Heidenberg and get a copy of those. We're, we're going to move through these a little bit more summarily. Um, not just one flyby. We might do the rest of the law that way, but um, we'll, we'll take these in, in smaller portions, but not bite-sized portions. Um, the law was written, this was, was revealed to Moses somewhere around 3,468 years ago, give or take. It seemed like a long time. Um, and you wonder, you wonder what, in, what in the world does something written well over 3,000 years ago, pushing toward 4,000 years ago, have anything to do for us today, especially when it's written in the Old Testament, especially when it's to a certain nation, not our nation, and certainly not to a church per se. It's not like reading the letters to the churches in the New Testament. So what, what do we do with this? And um, I think it's important we, we get some handle on how we think about the law of God and how we make that application for ourselves today. Now we need to do is a little bit of review because it is such an important topic. First of all, we need to remember that we are saved by grace through faith. Our salvation, our redemption, our right standing before the God of creation is based all on what he has done for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one summary in Galatians 2.16 says, you know that a person is not justified. That's a, a particular word about our salvation, about our standing before God. We're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We trust him. We believe upon him. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's always been and always will be our right standing before God is based on what Jesus has done in our place. We need to start here and remind ourselves of this. Of course, we need to remind ourselves of this every day, don't we? It's all of Christ. But we do then have a changed lifestyle. Uh, God brings these 
stipulations to a people that he has called out for himself, made for himself. And in the Old Testament case, he, he does this, well, in verse 2 of Exodus 20. On the basis of, of this redemption, we, we want to obey and God himself says that's the basis of this relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery. Because, the Lord says, I brought you out of slavery under Egypt, now here's what I expect you to do. Here's how I expect you to be a nation for my name. Now, similarly, we have to cross the waters into the, the New Testament here. Galatians, again, chapter 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. Right? That, speaking to the church now, you too were in slavery, not the same kind in Egypt, but you were in slavery to sin. Now, you were called to freedom, so don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole, the whole law is fulfilled in the one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the summary of the ten words. The ten words or ten commandments can be some uh, outlined in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the two can be summed up in one word, love. Because... We love God. We want to live as he would have us. And the way he has us live is, in fact, because it's his character and his nature. Leviticus 20 says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Keep my statutes. Do them. I'm the Lord who makes you holy, sanctifies you. Again, we cross the waters into the New Testament. It's repeated for the New Testament people, for the church. Be holy, because I am holy. You used to live in ignorance. You used to live a way that was out there in the world, out there in the, in the flesh. Satisfaction of self. But now that you're my children, the Lord says, be like me, be holy, for I am holy. And as it is his nature, and as we are his children, his commands are not burdensome. There's a, a delight, there's a pleasure in wanting to make our Father in heaven happy. Happy. And Jesus himself talks of his relationship as the eternal Son, fully God, fully man, taking on flesh. But he speaks of this ongoing nurturing of the relationship. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, abiding in his love. He's enjoying this intimate relationship, fellowship together. In 2 John Verse 6, this is love. What does love look like? Our world is telling us all kinds of definitions of love. In fact, it kind of begs the question, love is love. Well, that's helpful. You know what they mean, and that's still not helpful. What is love? Love is, looks like this. We 
walk according to his commandments. It, it's, it's that simple. Now, I suppose I should pause here because I'm, um, I'm nearly always asked about Psalm 51 when, when I refer to it or read it. Uh, and like, take your Holy Spirit from me? I, I thought I was sealed with the Holy Spirit. I thought I was baptized in the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost. And how can I lose the Holy Spirit? Well, recognize again the difference between an old covenant and a new covenant. Recognize the difference between a psalm written by specifically David, who is the king of Israel and the church. And David sinned. He, he didn't keep number... He's up here. I'm the only guy through no worship class in this It's number seven, right? I should remember that. Number seven, he committed adultery. I have to go through the song every time. And as I get older, the song gets longer. Now, <laughs> he committed adultery. He broke one of these words of the Lord. But in reference to the Spirit, he's the king of Israel. He'd been anointed as king and he had served Saul the king before him and he had seen how the spirit came upon Saul at his anointing to enable him and empower him for service as the king had nothing to do with a salvation or redemption it was a gifting of the Holy Spirit for his his task his ministry his job as the king and when Saul blew it then the enablement of God's Spirit upon the king was removed. And David says, I've done worse than Saul. I've grieved the Spirit of God. God, forgive me. Don't take the spirit of anointing of kingship away from me, but allow me to be able to continue to serve as king. So that's the context in Psalm 51, but it makes a great application for us because indeed we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. And then the abiding relationship is, is harmed, isn't it? The father-child relationship isn't broken, but the intimacy is harmed. And coming back into the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not that he ever left us, but walking in the Spirit, then we have this abiding, this fellowship. And we love to do the will of the Father. But even in all this, we recognize that it, he commands what he wills, but he wills what he commands. He he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you and through you. And so it's all of Christ, his doing and dying in our place to make us right before God, but also in his abundant life of obedience that our holiness is all because of Christ. And so Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of the law. The short of it, Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
You can read a longer passage there in Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. There is no condemnation. Christ has satisfied every expectation of the Father in heaven. And so he invites you to rest in him. Now all that is by way of, of review, uh, and I think important part for us to remember. Then we come to the ten words, to the ten commandments. And uh, they're negative, you know. If you would look in the, in the language of the Bible, uh, the first word is no. No. Sounds good in the room now, doesn't it? No. So negative. Well, we, we would rather give Tootsie Rolls to bribe for positive behavior than say, no, you can't do that. But, but think about this. This is relative. Negatives actually preserve our freedom. Don't take it away. Positives are what limit freedom. Negatives, negatives preserve, and we're generalizing, right? You can do it any other way except this one. I mean, that, that, that's a huge realm of possibilities, isn't it? But when you say positively, do this, suddenly all other options are off the table. They're gone. Clean your room. No wiggle room there. There's no option, no alternative, but clean your room. That, so keep that in mind as, as you think about stipulations, as you think about relationships and responsibilities. They're boundaries, yes. The negatives set, establish the boundaries, yes. And the positives then are how we operate within them. It's actually quite helpful. Now, there's different ways that we can, we can talk about the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. We typically think of the two uh, tables, but don't confuse that with the two tablets. It wasn't like there were four written on one tablet and six on the other tablet. No, all ten were on both tablets because it's government, right? Duplicates. Everything's in duplicate. One tablet is, is for the people and another tablet is for God. Now, in this case, they're both kept in the same place. The Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. Both tablets, both copies, duplicates kept in the Ark of the Covenant. But when you think of the two tab tables, you know, the four, first four, in terms of our relationship to God, and the latter six, our relationship to our neighbor. And that's helpful, but it is a bit more intricate than that, I think. Now, Alec Motyer, I'm adapting some of his. He does something a bit unique with number five, command number five, which is obey your mom and dad, honor father and mother. Um, but in tweaking that and reworking number five a little bit, I, look at this, thoughts, words, deeds, words, thoughts. There's a, a flow to this. We begin with thoughts. What do we do with God in our thinking? And then what do we do with our neighbor in our thinking? We end up in chapter 10, don't covet. And Paul is going to tell us that coveting actually is idolatry. So we've round out back at the beginning of the list. 
It's a fully encompassed thing. And, you know, the little children's catechism gives us a definition of sin. What is sin? Any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law by omission or commission. Thought, words, deeds. Do, say, think. Things that you don't do that you're supposed to do and things you do that you're not supposed to do. It, wonderful, helpful summary, I think, as we consider these. Well, let's look at the first three. The first three clearly are God-centered, aren't they? No other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. The sanctity of God's being, demanding and expecting our exclusive loyalty. It's a covenant relationship. That's how he started out. This is a relationship. I saved you. I brought you out of one household and bringing you into a new household to be my people. This is very similar to a wedding covenant. Going from one household and forming another household. And it's that kind of relationship and it requires that kind of exclusivity. One for another. And that's it. The two becoming one. Loyalty to the living God. Loyalty to Lord in all capital letters. L-O-R-D. If you're using the legacy standard uh, Bible translation, they've retained the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, have they put in there. Yahweh, the one true living God, the eternally self-existent, ever-present Lord. And without him, life is meaningless. Life is an absurdity. And he is to fill your thoughts. And Jesus puts it this way, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Top priority. You can't serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24. You'll love one or hate the other. You can't serve two masters. You can have only but one. You can't serve both Pharaoh and God. And so God called them out of Egypt that they might be free to worship and serve him. Now, this, this command is... Um, not to admit that other gods actually exist. Maybe you wondered that as we read the psalm this morning. No. Um, now, it, it gets... It gets uh, well, it, let's, we get definition from Paul. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. We know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. So this command undoes polytheism and pantheism. It also undoes atheism because the assumption is that God is. Wow, it was pretty good. It also brings in monotheism. There is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods, end quote, and many quote, lords, end quote. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. Paul says, what's, what's behind idols? Well, he'll go on to say, demons. They're the demonic. 
They're demonic counterfeits that falsely promote values that would draw you away from the love of God. Other gods permeate every culture and every society. Jim Greer says this way, at the heart of every culture is a religious movement. And you've heard me explain a little bit of this. Word of culture, cult. What is the cultus of the Old Testament? It's the, the worship system. A culture is the manifestation of what a society holds as their top values. And that becomes their religious system. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. It's not like they thought flies were so beautiful. But they took the value that, that flies could do and said, we want, a, we want that value. What if like, they multiply quickly, vastly? You want your crops to multiply vastly in abundance like flies do. You want your livestock to multiply vastly like the flies do. You like your kids to multiply as vastly as the flies. Now, remember, it's agrarian society, so you need the workers in the field. You make your disciples. It all was of position and prestige and power and possession. They didn't worship flies. They worshiped what it represented. Do we have gods of gold and silver in our own society, in our own culture? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The styles that you buy uh, of any type, not only clothing, but... I'm thinking I got cars on my mind, but I don't, I don't know. It, it, the, the culture wants you to submit to a particular lifestyle. And the values are impressed upon you. And God says, have no other values beyond me, higher than me. Exclusive loyalty. And he goes on to say, don't make for yourself any carved idols, any carved images, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The sanctity of God's image. We are word-shaped and we're word-driven. There's, there's like 14 different synonyms in the Old Testament for idols. There's all kinds of them. But in this case, it, it, because we already established there are no other gods, how is this one a bit different? This one is different in that it's an admonition, it's a, a guidance against worshiping the true God in a false way. Don't make images of God and worship Him what you think He looks like. It might be a token or a talisman. In just a chapter or two, Aaron, the priest, is going to do exactly this. He makes the golden calves. Do you remember? Now, Moses comes down, and Moses is angry with Aaron's brother. Imagine. And Aaron says, I put the gold in, and it came out. 
But as he's explaining to the people this, this issue of the golden calf, here are, uh, did I write down his words? Yeah, Exodus 32, verses 4 and following. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. No graven images. He, he's doing it before he even got the word. And he made a golden calf and he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. Aaron is saying, This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. This is what he looks like. This is his power. This represents his being and his nature. And tomorrow we're going to have a feast to him. God says, don't worship me that way. Don't create images of what you think I am like. What I have, how have I, in fact, revealed myself to you? How have I, says the living God, manifested myself to you? Now, I think we should be careful. And I'll simply say, be careful. I don't know if these, if these devotional objects are still available in the Christian paraphernalia stores, but you could get frogs, F-R-O-G, and dogs, D-O-G. They're acronyms. Stickers, keychains, Bible covers. Frog, fully rely on God. Dog. They're a little bit cuter maybe than frogs. Depend on God. The statements are true, right? Statements are helpful. I, li I like acronyms. I like alliteration, don't, don't I? I'll just share my, you know, a little squeamish. I not have a problem with frogs, but do you remember that frogs were one of the plagues? It represented one of Egypt's gods? And then, do you remember that it's like bowl number six judgment and revelation? Demonic frogs? So I, I, I just a little squeamish about imaging God that way. And of course, then uh, revelation ends with an invitation into the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city, and, and, but it says dogs are not allowed. Dogs in quotation marks. It's a religious term. So, I, you know, okay, I, I get the sentiment, but let's be careful. Let's be careful in how we're imaging God. How do you imagine God to be? And what's your source? Your feelings, your machinations, your own carvings? of mind or thought. God, God cannot be seen. God revealed himself through speech, through word. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, God makes it very clear. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. The words were the revelation. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. 
All you saw was fire, and apparently the fire was not the form of God. The fire was not the image of God. The words were. Verse 13, Deuteronomy 4, He declared to you his covenant, which he commended you, commanded you to perform. That is, the ten words that he wrote them on two tablets of stone. God has manifested himself, he's revealed himself, he's imaged himself in word. And yes, words are images. So guess what? In a real sense, every reader is a visual learner. We're even getting away from that, but we ought not be. We're people of the word, people of the book. The Bible, the Word of God, and our entire life and our worship is not image-driven, it's Word-driven. And every thought and imagination in our minds and our hearts about God, concerning God, is informed by what He has spoken and revealed to us. And ultimately, that revelation is, finds its fullness in the living Word our Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He made Him known. These verses equate Jesus as God, fully God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. And Jesus took on flesh and is the perfect manifestation, the living Word of God. Thirdly, don't misuse the name, the sanctity of God's name. So we've seen the, the holiness of God's being, the holiness of God's image, and now the holiness of God's name. This is a, a word of self-pronouncement, isn't it? Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He, he names himself. He did this in Exodus 3. Moses goes, goes before that, that bush and he, the, the voice of God comes to him. And, God, and Moses says, who do I say sent me? And the Lord says, I am Yahweh. Tell them Yahweh sent you. Um, all that he is, a name is not just a name. A name is the shorthand for the entire being and doing of God. All that he has done, all that he wills, his name, his word, it's him. He is the eternally self-existent, ever-present one. Now, how do we misuse the name? Well, we, we got the biggies, right? We can curse. That is, asking God to kill people. 
That's the, the damnation word when people say that. When asking the, de the deity to kill people and judge them. Expletives, like when you get angry at the person who cut in front of you on the road, or you hit your hand with the hammer, and things just fly out of the mouth. Expletives, blasphemy, you know, just rebellious language toward God. Obscenities, even talking about the human body and human functions because we are created in God's image. So when we demean his image, we demean him. But, <coughs> excuse me, I, here's our situation. When we say we're going to do something in his name and then don't, That's a misuse of his name. Uh, hypocrisy. Disobedience. Or, or you, can, you can apply his name to something that isn't worthy of his name. And that might be a little bit personal, depending on the situation and, and the need. Um, but, but for myself, I'll, I'll use myself as a personal illustration and example. It would, it would demean the character, the nature of God. If I pray for certain things like, Lord, give me a Lamborghini. No, make it a Pugani. That's not worthy of his name. It's certainly not something that he's revealed for me in his word. He says daily bread. Give us this day your daily bread. Now again, that's a personal application for myself. But I, well, you get the point, I hope. You can trivialize the name of God. Perhaps the frog and the dog go there a little bit, but even, well, I don't know, graphic arts that say this blood's for you. Well, what's behind that? A Budweiser statement, right? This bud's for you. I, I, just be careful that we're not trivializing God of the universe. Now don't now don't go now don't go poking at people if you see it. It might it might you might be sensitive in your spirit about it, but you don't you don't need to be brash at people for where they're at. Perhaps we can bring them along. Thoughtlessness, thoughtless, mindless use of the name. This can, happen, this can happen too easily when we pray, uh, even for quote-unquote good things, biblical things. We just use the name over and over and over. Uh, and Lord this, and Lord that, and dear God this. And it's just a bit redundant, a bit repetitive. And if someone did that with your name in a conversation, I mean, you, you'd kind of, Wonder, wouldn't you? 
I mean, to use the name respectfully, and reverentially, and timely, yeah. Or, or manipulatively, right? You have maybe some power encounters and power prayers and, you know, you think it's a real spiritual, powerful prayer meeting and, you know, spiritual warfare is happening. And so you, you throw the name of God out over and over and over and over thinking that the more you use it, the more that demon's just going to go away. You know, this is manipulative kinds of things. And I'm not suggesting that we engage in those kinds of regular behavioral practices, but I use these as examples to bring to bear in our own situations. Jesus talks about the name this way in Matthew 6, verse 5, related to prayer. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the nations do. They think that they will be heard by their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Your name be the center of all. Well, let's bring this together. The application of this, truth coming together in summary. There is one God. And God is one. He deserves your exclusive devotion. You can't serve two masters. <coughs> we read from 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus is the fullness of of the first word. Secondly, God has imaged himself in his word. Don't imagine him to be anything other than as he is in his word. And Jesus who is the fullness here. In the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. He has made him known. And third word, God has given you his name. He has named himself Wow, that's ultimate power. That's ultimate authority. Uh, one way that our society gets it to God, rebels against God, is renaming themselves, re-identifying themselves in ways that God has not identified them. Flies in the face of God Almighty. For He is the namer and the giver. And he's given you, as his child, his name. Revere him. Bearing that name. Taking his name with speech and lifestyle that are a testimony of his worth. 
of his glory. And again, Jesus is the fullness. Philippians 2, verses 9 and following. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Does that not sound like the ten words? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Lord, we are challenged and your spirit pricking our spirit in ways that uh, perhaps we have not revered you, not elevated you, not extolled you. What would you forgive us? Even as we've acknowledged in our prayers, the use of the Psalms already. Forgive us and restore us. And Lord, may we be a people that as we go about life in this society, indeed, we look different, we sound different, because we reflect you in every thought, in every word, and every deed. We ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen.